words of Jesus, alive and fresh tonight, just as the night he said it. After Jesus had said these things, the these things he's talking about is what we were talking about last week. Uh, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you, Father, gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I come from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. So, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. No one has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas there. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer isn't that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them in it from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer isn't for them alone. Now he's talking about us. I pray also for those who will believe in me through these disciples' message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I are, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's pray. Jesus, how can we improve on the very thing you prayed and pray for us so we would simply and humbly add our voice to everything that you have asked on our behalf? 
would you even let tonight be one of the times, one of the ways you answer these very prayers that you, uh, that you groaned out of your body the night before you gave your life for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, southern New Mexico, which is the place that my family and I used to live before we moved back to Georgia, is known for two things, pecans and green chilies. It's the pride of southern New Mexico. Every farmable inch of desert in the valleys where the river is and stuff can grow is filled up with pecans or green chilies. And uh, they would be grown through the summertime, harvested throughout the entire fall into the front edge of wintertime. And because it was such a huge undertaking, it required and needed a lot more workers and hands than our little town of Las Cruces had. So what would happen uh, beginning of every spring is that droves of migrant workers from Mexico and Central America would, would risk crossing the southern border into New Mexico and they would trek through this this super unforgiving, desolate desert uh, for about a 50-mile walk, walking for days and days until they got to these farms. And when they reached these farms, if they reached these farms, they would stay there for five or six months, and their life would become pretty much seven days a week working from dawn until dusk out in the fields working with the chilies, harvesting the pecans. And while they were here in the States, they would live on a shoestring budget. The only money that they would spend was on their own food that they would make. And every other dime that they made was sent back home to the family in Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras. And the reason that they made the journey every year and the reason that they would leave home and leave their wife or their kids or their husbands travel, a very dangerous journey to come up here, uh, is because their families wouldn't survive unless they did this. The economy back home could not support, couldn't feed the family. And so they would come up here and they would earn robust American wages and they would send that money all back home. And that's the life of a migrant worker, working their hearts out, only to send every dime they earned back home that others might live. I thought of Jesus every time I ever heard stories about these migrant workers. The parallels are uncanny. Here is one who leaves his home with the Father in heaven from eternity past. This is, this is one who has no beginning. He is God. And scripture makes clear throughout the story of history that he has left his home. He has traveled far. He is surrounded by dangers every day of his life, even before the first day of his life. Dangers on his left, dangers on his right. And he breaks his back and he breaks his soul in working. And every dime he earns, he sends back to us. Never taking it for himself, but giving every bit of it away for the survival of others. And so where we catch up with this Jesus 33 years into his mission in John 17 on what is the last night of his life before his death, he is as close as he's going to get to the soul-breaking work of what he's going to do on the cross for his people. What I read to you it was, uh, is not his last words, it's really his last prayers. 
which I think is more intimate and more revealing than his last words. Sometimes they'll publish someone's last words like some famous uh, revolutionary figure. His last words were these, or even a death row inmate. They'll report what the last words were, but the last prayers, that's something nobody gets to hear. These are the last prayers of your Savior before he shoulders your burden on our behalf. So you better believe in this moment he is laser focused on his mission. Not an ounce of confusion in his mind or his body about who he is and what he's here to do. And that's really our question here tonight. The next two weeks, we're going to look at how he accomplished this mission, the work of the cross, the arrest, the betrayal. But tonight, why? What motivated him to keep walking his way into the trap? He didn't have to. He's God. He's in control of all the circumstances. Why did he do it? Why did he do all the things we're going to see that he did in the weeks ahead? What's the goal of Christ's mission? You ready for it? Here it is, really simply. It's a two-part goal. The goal of Christ's mission is to give his people their God back and to give God his people back. Why did he do it? To give you your God back. Why did he do it? To give God his people back. Do you know of all the things that humanity lost in the fall, which is the the Bible's account of why the world feels as broken as you and I know good and well, it's as broken as. The fall is the account of that. Do you know of all the terrible things we lost that day, peace and comfort in a world that's not out to crush us and bury us and people that aren't fighting with each other. Do you know the worst thing we lost, the biggest thing we lost, the most devastating deprivation that we experienced that day? We lost God. It's not that God ended or ceased. He can't. He's God. But we lost access, friendship, intimacy, union with him, knowledge of him. And I hadn't thought about this much in my life, but don't you know that the loss went both ways? God never covers up throughout Scripture his distress, his heartbreak at what he lost, which is a people that he had made to love him and enjoy him and thrive in him, to come alive in him. And that's what walked away from him that day. So Jesus has come to right that and rectify that by giving his people their God back and giving God his people back. So here's the thing, that first little part. God is the treasure that you get in the gospel. God is the prize. God is the gift. God is the good news that you get him, all of him, for all of you. He's the treasure that Jesus' back-breaking work earned for his people. Access to him, reunion with him, friendship with him, peace with him, cleansing from him, innocence in his eyes, not your eyes, not your estimation, but innocence in his estimation, who is the judge. Jesus came ultimately to bring his people into the very life and the love of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit himself. I know this was long, especially if you're not familiar with this passage, I might have lost you at sentence two or three because you're like, 
what's up with all these pronouns? What's up with Jesus praying to the Father and the Father talking about the Son and all this other kind of stuff? Here's the point, though. This, is, this prayer is this pronoun gymnastics. I mean, listen to some of it. Just listen to some of it. This is verse 6, verse 21. Jesus says, he's talking to his Father. God the Son is speaking to God the Father. Father, I revealed you to them, my people. They were yours, and you gave them to me. May all of them be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, and may they be also in us, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. Whoa, what? It's like, you know, they put the thing under the cups and move them all around. You're like, where is it? Jesus has pulled his people into that level of access and union and relationship and love that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have with each other. I can't find words to communicate what that means. There are no words. Look, guys, God has not, the the point of the gospel is not to kind of marginally help you in your spiritual life. Jesus has come to bring you into the very love and life of God himself. The very last verse here, he says, he prays, as he's talking about, I've made you, Father, known to them, uh, that the love you have for me, Father, may be in them, and I myself may be in them. Jesus has come to bring you into that. So knowing God and being made one with him and decisively, once for all, reunited, reconciled with him, because of Jesus' work that we'll look at next week. That is what he has come to do. And so knowing God is more than intellectual knowledge about God. You know that, right? Knowing God doesn't mean um, that you have mastered Sunday school through your childhood and you remember the big picture, or you came to Freshman Fellowship and you've got the story down now. That's not knowing God. That's knowing about God, which is critical. I mean, Probably to know God, you have to know about him, right? If you don't want to know a person, you have to know about him. But knowing him is quite different than knowing about him. Uh, Y'all know Anna, my wife. You know know about her. I know her. Uh, Knowing about her, you might know things like she's from Statesboro or she went to UGA too. She was in this room as a student in RUF that we got married eight or nine years ago, that we used to live in New Mexico, but... You don't know her. I know her. We live life together every day. We share mission together, raising these four little chublets right now. We go through hell and high water together, and it binds us together. We have this back and forth every day of our lives. This constant banter back and forth with each other, this intimate knowledge of each other, this living life together, our destinies, our joy, our sorrow, our burdens are all the same. They're all tied together. I know Anna. Some of you might know um, about her. Some of us in this community, and I'm, I'm talking to this community, like we, can, we don't have to do the, those people out there. Let's just talk about this community. Some of you were like me most of my life, and you've accidentally mistaken knowing about Jesus for knowing Jesus. Here's the evidence of it. Every now and then you get together with people and you talk about him, But there's always that suspicion in the back of your head is like, I feel like I'm talking about Abe Lincoln. I don't know the man. I know about him. I know information about him. But I don't feel like I have a relationship with him, this back and forth that he affects me, that I affect him. That there's this lived life together, a binding together of destinies, joys, sorrows, 
missions. The true evidence that a person knows Jesus, knows God the Father, is evidenced by worship. I would, um, I'd take a, just a street-level jab at defining worship as being so caught up in something that you lose yourself in it. So mesmerized, captivated by something that you've, you've lost yourself in it. You become one with this thing or this person or this experience. You're absorbed into it so much bigger than you. That's worship. You, you can't worship something smaller than you. It's got to be big. It's got to be grand. Um, I mean, I worshiped at uh, the last just potent memory of worship that came to my mind when I was thinking about this was two years ago at the UGA Christmas Symphony concert. I'm a huge advocate of that. You should go when they start doing it again. Uh, when 200 voices of their choir processed in, and I'd never heard the song they sang that night, and I couldn't find it online afterwards, but it was about the glory of Jesus becoming man to save humanity. And oh my goodness, I couldn't sing along. I didn't know the words, but just tears coming down my face, my foot tapping in awe, my mind churning, writing down notes here and there of what was coming to mind. That's worship. There's been times when I've worshiped in sermons when someone is preaching or opening the Bible and I'm seeing God in a new way that I hadn't thought about before and I'm just sitting there, I'm like, I want you, I want you, I want you. I want more of you. That's worship. A lighter illustration. I saw worship last night. We were cleaning up in the Firestone room after Fresh and Fellowship and Spotify playlist is on and driver's license comes on and immediately Abby and Anna Mercer and Jeremiah and Kathleen just start doing all these crazy things with their just immediately break out into dance. It's like just the soul came on. Abby's eyes closed. She's grabbing the microphone, singing. Jeremiah's looking into Trevor's eyes, mouthing the words to him. Got a little weird. <laughs> That's what happens when you worship. You forget everything else because you're so caught up by the beauty of a moment or a person or a thing. Worship results from a true, deep, souled, whole person encounter with the true and living God who is real, who is alive, who preceded you and me. <laughs> Worship happens when you see him as he is. And Jesus said the whole reason he went to the cross is that you can see him as he is and not just see him and observe him, but know him and be loved by him and cleaned by him, redeemed by him, forgiven by him made one with him. That's what worship is. How might you discern whether you uh, have ever worshiped God, uh, really know him or not, or, or simply know about him? John Piper, uh, we'll pull this up so you can, you can take a look at it when I read it, but um, he wrote a book called God is the Gospel, and I, I like his litmus test. He's talking about, um, as we think about heaven and what that will be like, he says this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you've ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? People who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. 
Those are hard and heavy words, but what he's saying, friends, is, is what you love about heaven simply the stuff you love about earth? Or is the most, is the thing that whets your appetite and gets you salivating for the new heavens and the new earth is that God is there, and I don't have to live by faith anymore, seeing through a, through, a, through a glass dimly. I see him the way I see you, in full living color, with me, for me, forever. He's the prize. Yeah, all the other stuff is awesome, but I love it because he made it. It reminds me of him. It deepens my joy in him. People who have simply fallen in love with the world don't love God, don't want to be with God. That is a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an indicting quote from Piper, but we've got to talk about what if you read that and you're like, oh no, oh no. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I'd be bothered at all if I found out God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't in heaven, but all this other stuff is. What should you do if you don't know God like the way we've been talking about? Or if you can scan back through all of your conversations with other Christians or one-on-ones with interns and you, you, you come to the realization, I think I've turned RUF into one like four-year-long group therapy session for emotional needs and circumstantial needs, which we're not against. I got those too. Happy to talk about them, but is that all you ever talk about? Does Jesus ever come up? Does this deep desire, hunger, thirst, this sense of spiritual bankruptcy, oh, I need him. Oh, I miss him. Does that ever come up to you? Whereas every encounter with another person, how can you give me another temporary fix that I can make it another month and wind up in the same conversation? If that's you, um, listen, diagnosis before cure. Jesus says in what we talked about last week, he would diagnose that is, you don't love me, you love the world. It's why you're never persecuted. It's why the world has no problem with you because When the world looks at you, it sees its own values and desires mirrored right back to it. It sees agreement and and synergy. Nobody gets bent out of shape about where you stand or what you believe or your allegiance to Jesus because there is an allegiance to Jesus. Jesus says the world loves you because you belong to it. That's his diagnosis. But what's the cure? Because I know this room is filled with those people. I'm telling you. This is me most of my life. What do we do if that's you? What should you do tonight if that's you? Uh, You should look again at Jesus and what he came to do in the whole first place, which is exactly all we've been talking about tonight. Remember what we've already said and listen to what we're gonna say. Look back to Jesus and ask yourself, wait a second, okay, back to square one. Why did he come? Who did he come for? What was his mission? Principally, he says in Matthew, Luke, John, no one knows the Father except me. I've lived with him since eternity past. We know each other like the back of our hands. We know everything about each other. We love each other. We always have. Never been bored a day in our lives. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone I choose to reveal the Father to. Jesus says he can reveal the Father to you. If you feel like you don't know him, if you feel convicted by this stuff, Jesus says to you tonight, I can help you. Oh, I love to help people who don't know the Father. Oh, I love to help people who don't know God. It's the whole reason I came back, to give you your God back, to show you 
God the Father. In verse six in this passage, he says, I have revealed you, Father, to those whom you've given me out of the world. I gave them the words you gave me. And later he says, I pray for them. But Jesus didn't just come to show you God, uh, that, that you might kind of take the information and run with it. Jesus came to save you. Jesus came to save you. If this is the first Christian-y religious thing you've ever done, or if you were born in a church and have been there every, every day of your life, Jesus came to save people who apparently can't save ourselves, or else his presence and mission makes no sense. So your unbelief, though it's an obstacle to you, is not an obstacle to him. Your confusion, though it is a huge barrier to you, is not a barrier to him. In fact, the only kind of people he's ever saved have been people who stood on the other side of an impenetrable wall that he broke down through his work. So Jesus didn't just come to show you God, but to save us and to give us eternal life. Verse two, for you granted me authority, Father, over all people, not my, not my people, not Christians, all people. You, Father, gave me authority over all of them that I might give eternal life to them, which he defines in the next sentence as himself as knowledge of God, of knowledge of himself. Knowing God, in the way I talked about, like knowing my wife, knowing God, knowing Jesus is eternal life. That level of intimacy. And Jesus died and raised up to produce for you and in you what you could never produce on your own. Uh, let me just challenge one last obstacle before we push on to those of you in the room who do know him. But uh, what if you say, well, now's not a good time, Ben. Like, life's falling apart. I got all these other things. I'm trying to figure out my new schedule. Like, I don't even know half the stuff you're talking about. Let's wait. Let's punt. Let's wait for the perfect moment. When conditions are more favorable, I have a, I have a feeling in my heart, a, a physiological motivation to want to follow up on this and meet with somebody and talk about it. What if that's what you're feeling tonight? Like, I just don't have time for this. Um, can I say this in love? Your desire to wait for the perfect moment and to get your house in order before you deal with this might seem to you like godliness or wisdom, but it's resistance. It's stubbornness. It's not preparation to come to Jesus. It's refusal to come to Jesus. Jesus calls you as you are to himself to come and find healing. C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, the only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly that they seek it while the conditions are still unfavorable. Favorable conditions will never come. Friends, are you so desperate that you'll knock down the wall if you have to? Knock down the walls of heaven saying, hear me. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of my stubbornness. I want you. I want you now. Show me. Let me be one of the ones who knows you in this life and the next. That's what desperate people who really want God do. People who think they're supposed to say things like I want God but don't really want him are always in delay mode. Next time, next time. What if you do know God? What if you do know Jesus and you want more of him and you hate the distractions that pull you away from him? You just, your heart breaks. You kind of, you hate yourself. There's a lot of regret in your life over all the ways you, you just get blinded to him and forget about him and you want more of him. Then these are the things that you should see in this passage. Number one, Jesus, your savior, prays for you 
and he said explicitly on the back of the page, it's not just that he did pray for you, but he continues to protect you, continues to pray for you. And this is obvious, but if he's praying for you, it presumes you need praying for. It presumes this is not a safe place we're in. Dangers abound. Weakness abounds. Help is needed. And heaven has heard your cry or your groans, your weariness. And Jesus says, call received. And I am helping you by sustaining you, praying for you, advocating for you, representing you, protecting you. And here's the other big thing. And boy, I hope if, if you remember anything, it's that Jesus came to give you your God back and also this. Jesus also, uh, he came that God might be your prize, but he also came that we might be Christ's prize. The Father sent the Son that the redeemed, cleaned, forgiven, blood-bought people of Jesus would be the gift, the reward, the prize for Jesus, for his faithfulness, for his obedience, for his humility, for his love, for the Father's love for him. The redeemed people of God is God the Father's gift to God the Son. Christ is our prize, and we are his prize. You might know language in other places in the Bible where it talks about a, a radiant bride being presented to Jesus. Jesus has that kind of relationship with us. Ella said it earlier when she was talking up here, Jesus doesn't look at you the way you look at you, Christian. Jesus looks at you and all your brothers and sisters and his redeemed people and he says, mine, that's my gift, my prize, the joy that was set before me. Samuel Crossman was an old hymn writer from the 1600s and he was blown away by this too. He wrote a song. His lyrics go like this, my song is love unknown my Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Here might I stay and sing. No story so divine. Never was there love, dear King. Never was grief like thine. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Why is the church, which is the redeemed people of God, the purchased, bought back people of God, why is the church the gift, the prize that Jesus keeps talking about? He says it at least three or four times. Those you have given me, Father, the ones you've given me, the people you've given me, given me, given me. This is a new, he's been saying it throughout John's gospel. All those the Father has given to me will come to me. I'll lose none of those the Father has given to me. Why is he talking about us in these ways? Why are we the prize? Is it because we were lovely and God the Father's like, I don't know what to get you. Uh, here's something really cool. Look at these people. Aren't they awesome? That's not what Samuel Crossman, why he wrote this song. It's not why he worshiped. He worshiped because he knew Jesus came to not save you because you're lovely, but in saving you makes you lovely, makes you beautiful makes you valuable. And that is what the Father gives to the Son, a washed, cleaned, renewed, resurrected people 
who will be like Jesus when we meet him, who will be made like him in every way. Friends, you're a prize that Jesus wants. You are a gift that Jesus gladly receives. He says in verse 24, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am, to see me in my glory, which is to say to see more of me. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what he came to give you? He's praying that you would see more and more and more and more of him and just be absorbed in him and caught up in him. So you're a prize, we are a prize that Jesus gladly receives. And we're a prize that the Father himself is protecting for Jesus. Jesus prays that the Father would protect you in your moments of need. God the Father absolutely will protect you, not just for your sake, but for the sake of Jesus, whose you are. In that moment when you feel tugged away again by that little voice to go, binge on porn again. Jesus prays that the Father would protect you, would sanctify and cleanse you and keep you separate from that nonsense. When you look in the mirror and it tells you you're not valuable unless you're 10 pounds lighter, Jesus is praying for you, Father, protect her. When you're just about to give up on God because the depression you're in has numbed you, Jesus, your advocate, who loves you, prays, Father, protect her, hold her, sustain her, guard her. I want to end by talking about the big elephant in the room in this passage and a story. The big elephant in the room that we should address before we're done is this. Did you notice all the places that Jesus goes out of his way to say, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for my people. Did you notice that? It comes up multiple times. He's not even like polite about it, it seems like. He's saying, I am not praying for them. I'm praying for them, for my people. He says also that he's dying for his people. He's giving himself for his people. He's revealing himself to his people. He's showing the Father to his people. It's rather obvious throughout the passage. Here's the thing that Scripture um, clearly shows throughout it. There are only specific, actual, real-life sinners that Jesus gave his life for, that he died for and raised for. That's the only kind of person he died for. Never does scripture give us the warrant to think that Jesus died for some anonymous, generic, theoretical, hypothetical, impersonal, depersonalized, generic, abstract mass of humanity. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible from cover to cover. God is always talking about my people, my people. And there's no way that that reading of scripture to say that Jesus died for everybody or is is come to reveal himself to everybody, uh, that doesn't fit with this passage. We have a lot of explaining to do if we want to edit all of that out. You've got to edit about half of the chapter out. So what sense do we make of this? What do we do with this? I think at first we know this, 
that Jesus didn't die to make salvation possible. He died to make salvation accomplished, guaranteed, permanent, indestructible for his people. He didn't come halfway to meet you and say, if you'd only just do the rest, he came to do it all and to give it to you to be received as a gift. That's the way the Bible talks about the way that God saves. If you think about this, it's easy to say, like as a human being, I love everybody. I love everybody. There's a lot of people who think they love everybody, think they're loving, friendly people, until you say, what about your roommate? Oh, uh, well, most of the time. What about mom? Ugh. Sometimes. What about your boss? What about that politician you hate with all the guts in you? Oh, uh, well, I mean, there's exceptions, but I love most people. The problem with theoretical, hypothetical, generic, depersonalized, impersonalized, abstracted love is that nobody has to lift a finger to do it. It requires no price because it's not real. God the Father does not have that kind of love for this world. He has a specific, personal, knowledgeable love for his people. Real sinners with real birthdays, real names, real parents, real regrets, real failures, real shame, real guilt, real histories, real baggage, real desperation, real desires to be different, to grow, to know their God again. That's the only kind of person that Jesus has given his life for. God does the hard work of love. Not, I love everybody. What about so-and-so? What about? He loves his enemies. He loves specific people. So should you leave tonight and say, oh my gosh, what if I, am I his people? Am I one of the ones Jesus is praying for that he's revealed himself to or would reveal himself to? Can I, can I leave you with this? Jesus never tells you to sit on your bed and navel gaze wondering whether you're his or not. He calls you to come to him. That's the action step. If you've been here this fall, if you haven't, go listen to the podcast or go to your church and listen to the preacher, but he meets with everybody. Poor women with a terrible past, men who've abused their power and have no business knowing God, self-righteous people, unrighteous people, and he sits down with them and he says, you are who I came for. God does not want you to leave this place looking at you, wondering, am I one of the chosen ones? God wants you leaving this place looking at his beloved son, Jesus, who is the prize and has bought you that you might be the father's prize. Well, I told you we'd end with a story. This is the same story I opened with. My friend, Zach, one of my best friends. Zach is on the Border Patrol search and rescue team. And um, I, I would hear stories from Zach about when he would get, his team would get calls from migrants who'd been separated from their group. The, the group would get to a waypoint or they'd be picked up by Border Patrol and they'd say, hey, three of our people didn't make it. We don't know where they are. We lost them a few days ago. Zach's team would go out looking for them. And oftentimes what he would find as he'd walk upon these people is tragically, folks who had died in the desert were no match for the sun, for the dehydration, for animals. And what Zach told me is that oftentimes that he would look, uh, they would be searching these people for identification. And you know what they would find in their pockets? And sometimes even with more heartbreak in their hands? Pictures. Pictures of the kids 
that they left to come earn money to send back home that they could eat. Pictures of wives that were the reason they were doing it. The whole reason they went on the mission to keep them alive, to bring life to them. They never forgot what they were doing in that desert and where they were going and who they were going for. Their family was always on their mind. I don't think it's sentimental at all to say that as Jesus is in his last night about to go and be arrested and die, that he has pictures in his hand of his father, who he loves, and of his people, of you. You were always on his mind, every day of his life, the day of his death, and every day since. Friends, if you don't know him, he came to show you who God really is and to call you to come to him and let him do the saving, not you. If you know him, would you just leave drenched in this love? Jesus, we pray as we close that you will do the very things I invited my friends to do. I know they can't do it on their own. I can't produce it in them, but would you please help us? Oh, we pray it in your name because we long to know you and know you more deeply.